Hello, this is Mark Washbourne, CEO of ReadyTech, and I'm the host of the Worked podcast. And today we're going to jump into a discussion on an area that I think occupies a lot of people in business, and that is how to understand and navigate what can be a confusing universe of technology options. We're going to look at HR tech, we're going to talk about CRM and ERP. It's going to be a lot of fun, so please stick around. And my guest today is Matt Path, a veteran of the business technology industry in Australia and New Zealand. With more than two decades experience across a vast array of tech projects, companies and roles. Matt's renowned for his blog on the business technology players and trends. He's also the principal of the software advisory firm Value Adders and they provide tech vendor selection and research services to organisations that are looking to switch up their technology. I've always found that Matt is not only a very curious creature, he's also passionate about practical, plain English perspective and keeping it simple in a complex world. Matt's renowned for being a straight shooter and appreciated for his forthright, but also educated opinions, and that makes him the perfect guest for an entertaining podcast. Hello, Matt Puff. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. I know how passionate you are about business technology, so it should be a really fun discussion. Matt, I'd just really like to start by, as I do with all guests on the work podcast, is just to understand the story of your career so far. Well, I uh, finished school, didn't know what I wanted to do, thought if I went and did a business degree, it's pretty broad in its coverage, and went and did a business degree, finished that, didn't know what I wanted to do, travelled the world for a year, landed in Sydney the day the Olympics started, and got a job as a marketing assistant at an accounting software company in Sydney the day the Paralympics finished. So... Landed in business technology, accounting and payroll software 20 years ago um, this year and have stuck in and around ever since. Pretty much had every role from assistant marketing through sales and support, CEO, board positions, everything in between. And yeah, I, I think that gives me a relatively unique perspective on the industry and it's one that it found me but it was exactly where I needed to be. I was a purist, I loved business, I grew up in a family business. And when you understand the impact that technology can have on business performance and improving people's lives. I had a situation maybe 10 years ago where before Superstream came out in the payroll space, moved a client to the equivalent of Superstream that we'd built in the software. And she basically broke down crying saying gave her life back. Superannuation used to be so stressful that she wouldn't sleep the night before. And she only had 35 staff, but she had 30 super funds she was dealing with. And when we automated it, it changed her life. She was able to sleep the night before. And those things have peppered my career. And you go, yeah, this is very important what we do. And yeah, business software is a significant driver of business efficiency, but also helps people in their lives outside of business if, if things are going smoothly at work. Totally agree. I've had so many similar experiences where it's, uh, it can be just very fulfilling to solve problems with technology and transform businesses. So where's the real, obviously you've moved now to become, you know, I guess a thought leader and a writer and an expert on business software. Where's, where does that sort of deep curiosity and deep interest really come from? Look, I've always been the kid in the back of the class asking all the questions to get to the, the nub of the why. And when Simon Sinek started coming out and you know talking about the why, it was just something that I'd always done. It's just, I don't think it's 
nature or nurture. I think it's a little bit of both. I think I had that from birth and then my parents sort of nurtured in me. I was probably the annoying kid like my three kids at the moment who ask all the questions and, you know, but at the same time, I've always been curious as to the why and, and that then leads to sort of drilling in. And then sort of five and a half years ago when I left a business I'd been sort of running and shareholder in, I was looking for what next. I was a little bit lost, but what I frustrated me about the industry is most people who were talking about what was going on or writing about what was going on had a vested interest in a particular agenda. Six years ago, it was all about the cloud, but a lot of the people talking about the cloud were talking about the cloud because of the business model change. They were talking about moving to subscription rather than having a one-off purchase and these sorts of things. And it was really a misguided discussion. And unfortunately with technology, the consumer isn't always educated. And so people can use acronyms and tell people this is the latest trend. And a lot of people will believe that because they're not educated about it. Where I was very educated about it. The software company I worked with went to subscription in 2001. We didn't need the cloud to do that. We understood the reasons for the business model. And so cloud for me was always beyond the business model. But the motivating factors why people were so evangelistic about the cloud, I felt was because of the, the business model that it happened to create. And so I started to write about where I saw the future, You know what the cloud actually means. It's not about just the business model. It's about the centralization of data. With centralized data, you can then run artificial intelligence algorithms over that. You can start doing stuff with centralized data. It's what it enables. The deployment mechanism was well and good, but we had things like terminal server going back to the 90s, Citrix, wide area networks going back to the 70s. Like This idea that cloud was all about the deployment mechanism was a falsehood. It was about the business model first and foremost. And secondly, it was about the ability to then reinvent things and companies like Zero certainly were able to reinvent the business model as well as the way that data was leveraged and, and, and communicated between the, the stakeholders. I think obviously what we'd really like to talk about today and, and hear from you on is how you help businesses to make some of these really important decisions around technology. I, I think you know, looking at the software universe, there's large scale, very broad platforms, very niche platforms. We've got local players, global players. I know you do a lot of work in this, so it must, and it must be super confusing. So how do you help companies navigate all that? The first thing I do is, is educate people that there is no such thing as the perfect answer. I also say that there's more than one answer. And a lot of people in making decisions about software are looking for the perfect solution. And to some extent, they're looking not to be the person who makes the wrong decision. And that's really the wrong motivating factors for driving business decisions. So the the number one thing I always do is I educate people on what's happening in the marketplace. I have a view on really, really big or really, really niche, depending on what you're trying to achieve. The big global players in the business tech space at the moment, the likes of Oracle and uh, Microsoft and Salesforce, they have a capacity to develop and, I guess, amortise the development cost across a massive global footprint. And they effectively have an unfair advantage against a a small local player. But where a small local player can effectively compete is when they get deep with deep customer empathy for certain verticals and these sorts of things. And so first thing as I do is educate about that movement to these global platforms and what we call the enterprise cloud platform, um, as well as the, the rise of the SME ecosystem. So the likes of Xero, QuickBooks Online, MYOB, They've built an ecosystem around them where 
effectively the, the, that core accounting engine, the payroll engine sits there and then effectively you take a best of breed approach to you know, build what I call a Frankenstein ERP. And so those options are viable for every business. I've seen some very large businesses using Xero to do their accounting. 20 years ago, the idea that a large business would use an MYOB to do their accounting was almost considered irresponsible directorship if they allowed that to happen. But that small business software has been able to, I guess, scale in what it does and, and through an ecosystem of add-ons, they can actually scale based on the requirements of the user more than this perception that products fit a certain level of the market. So the first thing I do is I educate on the market. The second thing we do is it's got to be a holistic view. A lot of software decisions, and I've been talking about this, I remember talking at an aged care conference like 10 years ago, a lot of software decisions are made by she who screams the loudest. And that is in the aged care industry 10 years ago, a lot of decisions were being made around the director of nursing wanting a new rostering system. And they'd go for the rostering system that suited the director of nursing, but they wouldn't consider where that fitted into the rest of the model around care management and around the payroll solution and HR tech. And these decisions were made in isolation. It was all siloed and I've been banging on about this and it's only been reinforced to me more and more over the years that you have to make decisions holistically. Some people are not going to get the perfect solution within the organisation. You're never going to be able to satisfy every single person in every single role in the organisation that they have the best tool that's possible to them. Because in effect, there needs to be compromises. And the holistic view is always a strategic view first. Where's this business today? Where's it want to be? How much is it willing to invest in its people and its systems to get there? And effectively from that view, we then work backwards. And we eat the elephant one bite at a time is the cliche that I use, but it's about understanding where we are, where we want to be, and then chunkifying it down. That's another buzzword out of the US. A guy called Doug Sleater invented it, but it's a perfect way to describe how to go about breaking down that bigger project into bite-sized chunks with a view of what the strategy is and a view of how does this fit in with what we're doing in the rest of the business. Yeah, so there's no optimal, complete one solution, but what within that, there's going to be lots of trade-offs, right? 100%. And generally, jack of all trades means master of none. The alternative is you end up with such a Frankenstein of best-of-breed solutions within the organisation that you don't have one throat to choke if something goes wrong. Who do we call when the API breaks between these three systems? This system's talking to that system's talking to this system. If it breaks... Who's taking ownership and responsibility? So you kind of get this dichotomy of on one end, you go this jack of all trades, master of none. The other end, you go best of breed, but we need management of that. And that's not easy. And you get duplication of function across products. And even what happens over time, we're finding more and more products that integrate nicely today actually end up being competitors. In the US, in the payroll space, company called Zenefits and a company called Zen Payroll. They were basically brothers and sisters working cooperatively in the marketplace. Zenefits went and raised $500 million in a Series A funding round, which to this day has got to be one of the largest ever. And in eight weeks, they built a payroll system in competition to Zen Payroll. So then Zen Payroll changed their name to Gusto and went out and raised money, $100 million, to build benefits. And then all of a sudden, these two companies that were cooperating, the integration was working nicely. The integration no longer worked. And the user base had to make a decision about which way do we go. And so there is risk involved in having this 
Frankenstein ERP, where I guess in a way it's diminished by this non-best-of-breed, jack-of-all-trades, enterprise cloud platform type solution. There's also this middle ground. So the likes of Salesforce have a development platform that people can embed best-of-breed solutions within that. And that's where I'm seeing a real rise, particularly in the mid-market enterprise, where they give you kind of the best of both worlds. They're no longer external add-ons with external integrations. They're internal add-ons built within the frameworks of these products. So I'm sort of trying to coin a new term in the marketplace. And if people can start using it, make sure you credit me. But I've called ECP. Everyone used to refer to ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning, but that word's been bastardised and sort of gets associated with the accounting system, the finance system. It never really was meant to mean that. It's supposed to be all of resource planning. But what I'm seeing different with the cloud solutions that are rising is is this third-party embedded add-ins, not add-ons. And within that, that's where I've sort of coined the term the enterprise cloud platform, where the likes of Salesforce, who probably are the dominant player in that space, have an ecosystem of add-ons that are built natively within that. So, for example, Salesforce themselves don't build an ERP or finance solution, but there's a separate company called Financial Force or Accounting Seed or Canandy. There's a number of ERP vendors that embed themselves inside that environment. So that's really the the three options you have. You go something like a zero plus add-ons, you go some sort of comprehensive solution, or you go some sort of middle ground. It's it's interesting marketplace. And depending on where you land with that decision is probably going to depend on how nimble you end up being over time, because inevitably your business is going to change and your business is going to evolve. And some of the larger, more monolithic systems might actually limit your ability to pivot over time. Funny you say that. We're just around the corner from a client of mine who went that path. They went an all-in-one solution and they felt that effectively they were trapped. And so they pivoted to the exact opposite and they just hated every part of it because in effect they had all these moving parts and the subscription costs kept adding up and they'd have to add another piece here and then that didn't talk to that and there was duplication of data. And so they've come to me to say, we've tried this, we've tried that, what do we do next? It's the cycle that software takes time to develop. And so originally there was this rise of microsystems, mini systems, wide area networks, then came DOS, then came Apple Mac, and then came Windows. So these all created evolutionary technologies that meant that the old had to be rewritten, typically. And cloud has been that the most recent example where products had to be rewritten, which gave those who were early to cloud a head start, those who were late to cloud, there's an argument to say they have an opportunity to leapfrog because what's also moving is development technology. Like when I started in the industry, everything was what they call waterfall. You sort of make a plan and you stick to the plan and then no one ever meets the plan because things change on the way through, but everyone accepts that. And then this thing called Agile came along and lean development and MVP. And I think we actually almost went too far down that sort of extreme agile sort of approach. And now all organizations are finding their own rhythm somewhere in between waterfall, long-term planning and extreme agile coming back into not so extreme. That also has impact on the end user and the way things work. And look, 20 years ago, the profession of UX designer did not exist. I think one of the Queensland universities was one of the first universities in the world to introduce the course in the early 2000s. So when you're building software in the 90s, you don't think of the user experience design. The joke I always tell is a manual that's the sort of car your dad used to drive, right? It's not something you need to read to learn how to use software. When I entered the industry, the common term on the help desk was RT, 
FM. I won't say what the F means, but it means read the manual. If you say that today, you don't understand software. You know, the, the user shouldn't have to read the manual. The user should be able to be navigated through a workflow, through online help, through systems that mean they don't have to RTFM. That's been another major change in the industry over the last 20 years. Totally. And if you want responsive software where you're continuously releasing, then the manual's going to get out of date pretty quickly as well, right? 100%. And look, everyone faces that at the moment still, you know, because there's online help, the YouTube videos, those all need to be maintained, right? An area of technology that I think, you know, a lot of companies look to navigate through, and I get asked about a lot, actually, I'm really interested in your views, is CRM, customer relationship management, and... What are you, I'm interested in what you're seeing there and how you're advising organizations around that. I think at times, certainly I think you see organizations using that purely for the customer acquisition pipeline function, whereas of course others might use that for the full end-to-end customer journey all the way through. The biggest challenge 20 years ago with CRM was getting salespeople to use it, right? It was a communication tool and people didn't want to use it. They saw it not as benefiting them, but as about management overseeing them and making sure they were doing their job properly. It hadn't actually realised how to empower people to do their job better. I think that's evolved dramatically. And if I'm being frank, the market opportunity for CRM, the market has grown significantly. The, you know, the sort of businesses that would put CRM in 20 years ago, now most businesses are considered you need to have something in. And there's new acronyms doing the rounds. That There's CLM, Customer Lifecycle Management, you know, to try and distinguish it from a pipeline management tool. But I see three kind of breakouts of CRM at the moment. You have your pipeline, very Salesforce-driven solutions at one end. And up the other end, you have your lead gen, e-commerce, lead generation slash... Like where HubSpot started. Yeah, exactly. HubSpot's up that end of the equation, then pipe drives up the other end, but they're all meeting in the middle, right? And the other thing that's happening is the convergence of ERP and CRM. Getting back to my point about enterprise cloud platform is it was a given acceptance that your debtors module was separate from your CRM. Like in hindsight, that's just illogical to me, right? If you're going to have a view of your customer, you need a full view of your customer, including transactions and how much money they owe you. But because of the evolution of ERP and CRM separately, that's been just a given acceptance. And people talk about how do I get that information into my CRM? Well, What's evolving is the likes of NetSuite unifying CRM and ERP, Salesforce unifying that with more and more functionality around invoicing and these sorts of things. Um, Key partnerships that are forming as well, right? So there's these unified platforms. Microsoft have gone and built the Microsoft Dynamics platform, starting to converge all their ERP systems in their CRM. Now, Sage have talked about the death of ERP and CRM as a common platform for years and years, but I actually genuinely think it's starting to happen. It takes a long time to build the Great Wall of China. It takes a long time to build a comprehensive data management slash accounting slash CRM system. So I don't think it's a coincidence that 20 plus years or 22 years into cloud or wherever we are at, that we're now starting to see these mature, genuine solutions. But we still, again, I get back to that, there's no perfect solution. Like even if you go Salesforce, Salesforce have acquired Pardot and Marketo because they don't do the marketing automation stuff that the likes of HubSpot do really well. They've been really more around the other ways that CRM has been used for client communications and lifecycle management, those sorts of things. But they brought in the Marketos and the Pardots to add that additional functionality. So Yeah, I think it's... Uh that blurring is making it 
very messy as well, isn't it? You mentioned before about Zenefits, what they did in the US. You know, you've seen Hub, HubSpot have added like a service desk, like ticket system. And Zendesk, which is a service desk, now has a CRM. Like it's, uh, yeah, it's confusing. But at the end of the day, it's about that unified customer view, right? I've, I've talked about this in the accounting practice management space, but it applies across all business. It'd be good to have a clear view of your customer. Clear view of your customer is their account, i.e. Their, how much they owe you, the invoices that you know they've had over the years, the communications we've had with that customer, any service tickets that have occurred against that customer. This idea of a unified customer view is what CRM really should be, and it does need all of those components to come together. So this convergent evolution of ticketing and help desk into sales was bound to happen. But again, even in that space, you're starting to see those relationships strained. So Zendesk worked really well with HubSpot. They now are both effectively direct competitors because they're both doing a little bit of what the other one does. I've seen an enormous number of CRM projects go wrong and never go live and get thrown out. And I think part of that is when they've been tried to be implemented across the top of a lot of other systems and link all those just to get the single view of the customer as opposed to being truly operational and actually driving the practices. 100%. But the reality is, unless it was SAP, Oracle, no one had software in the small or medium business space that provided a unified view. It, just, it was too complex or too broad to try and build that out. Now you're getting lots of systems doing it. A, because there's a more rapid level of development happening. You just look at someone like Accelo out of, um, out of Wollongong slash you know, the United States. They've built out a unified view of customer CRM data for the professional services space. This is really surprising because you, you start to go, well, if they've been able to do it, why haven't others? Well, technology, I run some software companies. I, I don't have to build an email service into my software. I just use SendGrid. I don't have to build an S gateway in my software. I just use something like Amazon SNS. This ability to microservice your software architecture allows companies to accelerate the rate of development that just wasn't possible in the past. And so you get this componentized microservice type architecture and it's really only now we're starting to see the, the fruit of all that sort of evolution of technology and the way software gets built. I'd like to switch to an area that I know that you've spent a lot of time on uh, and uh, worked within obviously a core part of what we do at ReadyTech as well. Uh, let's talk about HR tech. And uh, I think I, what is HR technology but you know, it's like an umbrella term, I guess, for all of the technology that manages the people and HR functions. I'm interested in the buying decisions and the changes that you're seeing and the key trends that you're seeing in that space. Well, basically everything we've talked about as far as ERP, CRM applies in the HR tech space. It's been really off-putting for me over 20 years in the industry that I couldn't understand why there were all these silos as subsets of the HR tech space. It was just so obvious to me that we needed a unified view of employee. We have CRM for customer. We have finance system ERP for finance. What's the major record keeping function within a business that's really been even more so disparate than anything else has been HR, particularly if you have functions like rostering and time and attendance. Rostering time and attendance has been one product. Payroll's been a separate product. HRIS has been a set, recruitment's been another one. And there's just been this best of breed approach has always been taken to specialist solutions. But something that I sort of started talking about about seven, eight years ago to my team when I was sort of running a payroll software company is we've got to stop focusing on the business being our customer. We're going to start focusing on how do we make the employee experience optimal because 
that's the thing that's most critical because if you can slow the churn rate of staff, the impact on the business is great. And, and if Nancy, who's running payroll, has to spend an extra 10 minutes each week because we haven't got to that feature yet, but her 274 employees get a much better onboarding experience and that's where we should focus our energies. And so I started talking about this employee experience and seeing the rise of employee experience out of, out of the US. Like you talk about Zen Payroll that became Gusto. Like the CEO there, Joshua Reeves, is, everything he was talking about seven, eight years ago is what I was talking about here in Australia. And I just found a kindred spirit in, in watching what he was doing. He's just far better connected than I am and created in a much bigger market. But like this shift to the unified employee view from an employee experience point of view has seen a real change in the HR tech space. We're seeing the rise, like yourselves, of, of this all-in-one type solution with the HR 3 Plus offering and more and more blurring of what were historically cooperative partnership type arrangements becoming co-opetition where you still have mutual clients but you're actually starting to compete against each other and that's an evolving beast. I've literally just come from a client, a, a large hospitality group who's looking at the HR software at the moment and I get back to what I was saying before we're looking holistically what are the problems we're trying to solve how do we make the experience of the employee the best how do we give them one portal where they can see their pay slip where they can apply for leave where they can see their roster where they can shift swap they can do these sorts of things and the reality is that's only now becoming available. We're seeing the rise of products like WorkJam and Moomba, which are doing it because the technology that sits underneath them can't. So they create this employee experience platform. It's like that, a layer that connects everything for a, like a single view for the employee or access point, right? 100%. They will have a lifetime. But I, I see that as a temporary product category because why does it exist? It exists because the other guys haven't got their act together, right? It's particularly the enterprise end of the market that historically haven't got their act together. And that's where the opportunities for the likes of, you know, the HR3 pluses and, and dare I you know, mention the names of like Ceridian and these sort of guys are coming to market now and really knocking on the door saying, well, you don't need these sort of legacy systems and plumb them into new front ends when you can just have, you know, a whole new system. I think that first of all, obviously you're getting, you know, you've got expectations from the employee where they've got great consumer-like experiences that, you know, is also the expectation is I want a great experience from my employer. I think you've had a ton of really sort of nimble, innovative companies that have just sort of solved one of those functions that has then led the market to need that. And then obviously that gets extended into the larger platforms. I think mobile is a big driver of that as well. Everything's going to be connected for the employee in one moment. You can't do that unless you connect all the systems together or it's an all-in-one. There's, there's a huge drivers towards that all-in-one. 100%. And it's surprising to me to see the rate at which this is happening. I, I, I was talking about it, as I said, I started talking to my team about it seven, eight years ago, and I didn't feel like much had happened over the three to four years that then follow. But now it's coming in an avalanche and, and this all-in-one sort of or unified view is, is really what anyone wants to talk about. Every company I engage with, it's all they want to talk about is why can't we just have one? There's no perfect system that exists. It's about going through a process of taking a holistic view just maybe if the payroll person doesn't get the perfect solution, but the employee ends up having a great experience, that ultimately is what we need as, a, as an organization. And so it's still evolving. And the big thing that's happening, and you guys have been part of it, is, is acquisitions are a way to make it happen faster. I won't mention the competitor's name, but one approach is to just to acquire all the pieces and try and smash them all together. Personally, I don't think that's going to work. 
The other approach is you acquire something that's nearly there and you basically make it better, which is what I'm seeing you guys do with the Zambian product that's now HR3+. These are happening and the holistic approach is the only way for an organisation to start to make these decisions. And they still may end up with a componentized system. And, and in fact, in the last sort of half dozen projects I've done, I'd say half of them have ended up with best of breed, three or four different technologies because that suited their business model. And they were probably looking on a time horizon of three years rather than five, 10 years. And, and that's another thing that comes into play is what's the time horizon you're looking on for having to change systems again? <laughs> and if you're going, you know what, we want to invest in this for seven to 10 years, then you need to be selecting the ones that have momentum in the marketplace, that have investment behind them, either they're listed or they're private equity or there's some way they're funding the business to sort of grow. I remember four or five years ago hearing people in the US, part of their selection criteria for um, business software was who's your PE firm funding you? And scoffing at that, going, that's just ridiculous. You know, like that's, that shouldn't be part of the decision making. But now I get it because I'm seeing the rapid change. And if you're one of those smaller players that's sitting there with a really good product, you're either going to be acquired eventually or you're going to have to get really, really big. And there's a risk factor there. Not many get big. You know, if we look at the market in Australia, there's just not many that have made that transition. The rostering market is, you know, you and I have talked about this before, is got to be at least 250 individual players in the rostering time and attendance space in Australia. That is unsustainable. <laughs> it's just effectively a cottage industry. And everyone tells me that they built it because they couldn't find a product that could do the job. And I laugh in their face and go, well, have you actually seen how many different products are out there? Did you use that thing called Google to actually search? Did you talk to any of your mates? Oh, yeah, nothing existed. Okay. They've existed. Australia has actually led the world in that rostering time and attendance space. Um, you, you look globally at who have sort of popped up over the years. And, and I think it comes back to the complexity of our legislative environment that time and attendance needed to do things like award interpretation, but also our adoption rate of cloud has led the world. And that's the perfect use case for cloud has always been rostering time and attendance. And that's the rest of the HR stack as well, because the employee isn't necessarily always going to be in your office, being able to log onto a network. They're out and about, they're in your venues, they're at home. That's when they want to access their payslip. What makes it even more complicated, of course, is there's horses for courses, which some platforms just work better in certain industries than other as well, right? A thousand percent. And that's, that happens organically as well as strategically. So jack of all trades, master of none. And there's typically the global players who try and be everything to everyone. The local players have to find niches and often happens organically. In the HR tech space, we've got the V-Shore business and we effectively fell into hospitality as one of our key, it wasn't strategic that we chose to go in there, but we just kept getting taken from client to client as people within that industry. And it's applicable in other industries, but we just focused on that because that's where the organic growth grows. So what you end up doing is you start to tailor functionality based on what the clients are asking within that space, which means you then can get niche. But yes, certainly in Australia, you see that niching happening and certain strengths within certain industries. Can I also ask you about in the HR tech, you know, you've sort of almost got the two worlds, traditionally anyway, of payroll, which is more compliance-led, more risk-led, also a lot of the compliance functions around HR. On the other side, you've got focus on employee engagement and building great culture and great employee experience. So through the buying decisions, are you seeing like, is there a tension in that? And how do, how do you help organizations work through that? I could do a whole podcast on my views of the HR industry because it's no longer called HR, it's called people and culture. And I don't think it's any coincidence that 
the rise in underpayments and foreign worker abuses has coincided with an entire industry changing its name and changing its focus. Well, this is really controversial. <laughs> but you only have to go to the ARI events and see that there is not one, not one thing they do on compliance anymore. HR was very much a compliance industry five, ten years ago. In the last five years, every person in HR is no longer doing compliance, they're doing people and culture. And, and look, I'm talking in generalist terms here, but there is certainly a tension. The tension goes back to the industry itself actually finding its feet. Payroll all of a sudden was no longer in the HR department, it was in the finance department. It's a back office function. The HR department's about people and culture, and payroll's just a, you know, it's another general ledger type function. I actually think largely because of the underpayment scandals that have happened in Australia in the last couple of years particularly, there is a little bit of a backlash that, hey, we do need to get the balance right. And absolutely that is reflected in choices around technology. So you need to be somehow making sure the compliance is there whilst delivering the employee experience. And, you know, without bragging too much, that's been the focus of the V-Shore product from day one. How do we automate compliance and focus on delivering that employee experience? And that's really where decision-making is actually finally catching up. I'm, I'm seeing it in the vendor selection projects we go through. There is an awareness, certainly front and centre. I think reputational risk at board level has come more into focus. It's not just the fines you get for non-compliance and the back pays and all those sort of risks. It's not a financial risk. It's as much a reputational risk. 7-Eleven's up to $173 million in back pay for their foreign worker abuses. And that stuff has ruined the directors of that company, you know. The chairman was this, you know, the chairman of um, the AICD. He's basically lost all of his directorships and now is, you know, just on the 7-Eleven board because it's massive implications. And, and so there is an awareness, but there is also, we're never going to lose sight that the employee experience is, is, is front and centre. I think we're starting to find that happy middle ground. I think for five years we lost our way, but I'm certainly in the decision-making, the conversations I'm having, people are finding that. And again, there's no perfect solution. It's a matter of finding the right solution. Just to follow on that, I've just come from this hospitality client. They run sort of 14, 15 pubs. And they want someone to own the responsibility of keeping them up to date if the award changes. So the, the, the historical award interpretation, it's really funny. There's a little bit of outsource, but not, not just outsourcing it, but hey, keep me abreast of it. You've got lots of clients who are pubs, all under the same award. There's only, there's only 122 awards in Australia now. I grew up in an industry with 4,400 state instruments. People complain about how much red tape's out there. No, please, 20 years ago, if you operated a business in Sydney and a business in Brisbane, they're under different awards and they basically could be under a federal award People in Victoria. People themselves lucky, shouldn't they? Oh, I... I, I it actually really gets me angry that, oh, it's all too complex. These underpayments have happened because, you know, it's all got too complex. It hasn't got too complex. It's actually far less complex than it used to be. 4,400 state instruments came 122 federal instruments. That is a massive achievement I think Australia has achieved over the last 10 years through 2010 when the modern awards started to come through with fair work. I, I think it's massive. But there is still complexity in there, but the complexity is a legacy thing based on the 4,400 state instruments and the Labor government who brought in modern awards saying no one will be worse off. Well, when you say no one will be worse off, you built a rod for your back because when they're paying 15% Saturday loading in South Australia and only 10% Saturday loading in New South Wales, that means that everyone's got to go to 15%. 
Otherwise, the South Australians lose out. But that means that every employer in Australia just have to give everyone a pay rise. No, you can't do that. So they phase the modern award in over five years. So it catches up and South Australia is pegged back as it's pegged forward. So anyway, the point is, I think the environment for compliance, yes, it's, it's difficult, but I think it's manageable and people just need to focus an effort on it. And getting back to the point, my client doesn't necessarily want to outsource the compliance obligation. They want an expert who's seeing it to just give them the heads up and not make it on them all care, no responsibility, which to be honest has been the rostering time and attendance payroll space forever. All care, no responsibility, your system, we can't be held liable for you not setting the system up correctly. Well, if you've got people across the country on the same award, just keep us up to date when that award changes and and still say all care, no responsibility, but be proactive about, hey, this pay rate has changed or this level of the award is now different. Just keep us up to date. It's interesting. I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you what you think the impact on all this particularly on hr tech of covid's been it's obviously been the most exceptional time and we let's hope we're coming to the right to the end of it now but we've got a lot more people working from home which means that we're going to have a lot more requirement for remote usage thinking about productivity and connection to all that as well as you know we've also got the whole notion of annualized salaries and keeping track of people's time so what's the ramifications of all that in hr tech and this business software I think one of the best memes I saw going around this year sums it up. It was, who led the digital transformation in your business? Was it the CEO, the CTO, or COVID-19? And absolutely no question, things that have been talked about, that yes, we'll get to that, have been accelerated by COVID-19. There has been forever and a day the talk of flexible work arrangements. In fact, it's mandated in law, you know, that you need to provide a flexible workplace. But the reality of driving that change inside of organisations has been slow. COVID has accelerated what was happening anyway, in my view. And I also think it's brought a bit of realism to this working from home thing. People like me with three young kids, working from home ain't really that cool. It's not that much fun. And it's not really that easy. And the mem's doing around with the BBC presenter with these kids running into the room while he's on the BBC. That happens. And people are, I think, far more accepting of the work-life balance now. It's probably been a positive that's come out of it. But I also think that certain people have been disproportionately affected by COVID and working from home. I think some people have found what they want to do for the rest of their lives. They want that working from home thing. They want the flexibility to sit at home in their shorts and all their, you know, their pajamas for hours, not travel. not travel, save a couple of hours a day in travel, and and they actually enjoy the quiet time at home. Others like me with three young kids, we really respect going to the office now and really understand the value of being able to separate your home life from work life. And sometimes when your office is upstairs and your kids know you're upstairs, that ain't that easy. Look, long term, I think there's some realism that's come in. I think. You only have to look at the Zoom share price to understand what's happened as far as the technology stack. There's a classic example of, that was a saturated industry. Those guys who came up with Zoom, I'm like, but it already exists. You know, you've got big companies like Citrix and LogMeIn. Like these guys are already doing it. What makes you think that you can write a better search engine than Google? Like, good luck with that. What I'm seeing as well is obviously that systems have had to be spun up very quickly to deal with problems, whatever it was that was to service clients remotely or to support employees remotely. I've actually really noticed what it's given people is this sort of newfound confidence that 
oh, we can actually change. It's possible. We did it. We did it fast. And we can keep doing that into the future. 100%. It, it, look, part of what I've learned over the 20 years is with any change management process, you must get some sort of inertia happening early on in the project. Momentum is how you help change people's thinking. The worst thing you can do is go in with the thick edge of the wedge. But COVID has created, well, we have no choice, guys. And this isn't us doing this because we think you're magically came up with this overnight. We have to do it. We have to get it sorted. So the resistance that normally comes when I talk to my clients in 20 years of doing project management, 30% of people are always all for it because the existing system is so bad, you could give them a pen and paper and it'd be better than what they think of the current system. 30% are all against it because they're just natively, inherently change resistant. You could basically offer them $100 basically for a $5 note. And because they're happy with that $5 note, they'd still resist giving you the $5 note. You know what I mean? And then 40% sit in the middle and they're waiting to be influenced by the other 60%. What COVID really allowed was the naysayers had no choice. Their voice was not heard. But what it's actually then also done is it's given confidence to the, the majority to go, you know what? We were able to roll out our new system within two weeks that was supposed to take us six months. And that's, that's a real example I heard from a client. They had to roll out a brand new system to all their staff. It was scheduled for a six-month project. They did it in two weeks and they did it on their ear. Exactly as you said, that has created a confidence that we can change. We can get rid of these legacy tech solutions. Like mindset's really, really important in the change to bring in well, new technology. Mindset and inertia are the two absolutely thing. And Involving people in the decision-making, I think, is the third that I always educate people on. Is There's a famous drawing I show you. You probably remember it. You know, you've seen it many times. There's the old woman or the young lady, depending on which way you look at the picture. I always show that to my clients and I say, perception is reality. And actually, as long as people feel they've been part of the decision-making process, then change is easier. Where you get the most resistance is where they feel they haven't been consulted on it. They don't even have to get everything they want. They don't have to get anything they want. As long as they have felt heard and they understand the bigger picture, the strategic reasons, then people won't be as resistant to change. To use one of your terms, I 1,000% agree with that. I've seen that time and time again. Yeah. Totally true. So look, I've really, really enjoyed the discussion. It's gone really fast, actually, Matt. And uh, you were exactly what I was respect expecting, which is very forthright and quote-worthy. You're quite quote-worthy, especially about HR. Just like to finish with, any final predictions for the future of technology and business software? I think you're going to see a lot more acquisitions. I think with where the world's at, there's going to be low interest rates for a very long time. That's basically, you can see that in the 30-year bond rates and these sorts of things. Low interest rates are here to stay. So private equity firms are looking for where we're going to put our cash and software seems to be where this long-term diminished risk comes into play. We can see that there's a growth path here. And so I think there's going to be a lot more consolidation of players. That will happen largely driven through acquisition. I think the misguided view that you can go and build the next WhatsApp and exit for $23 billion is coming a little bit into reality. Like I used to sit at Fishburn as a startup hub in Sydney and, and it ultimately depressed me because I'd been in the industry so long, people just see WhatsApp selling for $23 billion and they think, oh, I've got a great idea, I can go do it. They don't understand the difference between an idea and execution. And I actually think 90 plus percent of startups fail in that space because 
you can have the best product. And it comes back to the Betamax versus VHS. Betamax was a far better technology than VHS. But VHS got the porn industry on board, which then basically sewed up the entire video market. And people didn't want to have to decide between VHS and Betamax. They just went with the consumer product that everyone was using. And so the best technology doesn't always win. What wins is basically getting out there and either really understanding and empathising with the customer or somehow running channel management better than everyone else, right? How, how do you block out your competitors by owning the channel to market? And I think it's going to take a lot of consolidation in the issue. HR tech will end up with not this really disparate rostering time and attendance recruitment payroll. That's all just going to continue to consolidate and we'll look back and go, wow, do you remember when they were different products? I think the rostering players will continue to build out HR functionality. The payroll players will build out time and attendance functionality or they'll acquire it. And the HR tech players will either be acquired or they themselves will build out that functionality. I think the future is unified platforms and potentially more along the lines. I haven't seen it emerge yet and I'm still waiting for it to merge. Hopefully ReadyTech can look at this with the HR3 acquisition. Looking at that Salesforce force.com or the NetSuite suite app environment where you allow third parties to build inside of your product. When you get to a proper platform, that is the definition of platform, when other people can build things and they can bring ideas. You know, I saw a documentary on Lego. Lego turned around when they opened up to their passionate customers and said, what sort of kits of Lego should we put together? And we'll, we'll award people who come up with great ideas and actually show us what we should put in a kit. So they outsourced their innovation. Because the problem, the bigger you get, the harder it is to continue to innovate. When you're small and nimble, you can innovate. So that's where opening up your ecosystem to allow third parties. So number one prediction, there will be a player, hopefully it's ReadyTech, emerges in the HR tech space that adopts that NetSuite Salesforce model of add-ins, not add-ons. Fascinating. I've got to get back to the office and crack on with it. Thanks so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. Thanks, Mark. And to you, the listener, I really hope the discussion with Matt helped you to make better and more informed technology decisions in the future. For more on the Work podcast, please subscribe on your favourite streaming service and never miss another episode.